<laughs> I feel like I owe Jan an apology. I, I put, totally put him up that this morning. I said, you'll never do it, triple dog dare. So if, I, if he has to get in trouble, just blame me. I'll be the substitutionary person here. <laughs> you are the man. <laughs> yeah, you did. Oh, that's funny. Um, well, indulge me for a moment. I had a bit of a Father's Day um, experience, too. Earlier this week, my, my, my youngest came back from VBS, and he came back with that little, uh, um, it's a little box, but it's the piggy bank where they're, they're raising money for the orphans in, in Haiti. And, um, and he comes home, and, and he wants to put his own money in there. You know, I'm just like, oh, I'm a little buddy, you know. Um, and then he proceeded to go to mom, dad, and all his brother and sister and to plead for money to put in this thing. I mean, I was thinking to myself, man, there's a little fundraiser in you. I, I don't know how many, how many dollars he collected, but he's just at it. And, of course, he gives you those, you know, sad eyes. And you got to put money in his little piggy bank. So I'm thinking, here's my little, little guy. He has a little heart for Jesus. And then last night I'm barbecuing out in the front, and I turn around, and my son is peeing on the flower bed. And I was just like, the same kid, you know? It's like one minute you're raising funds for orphans, next thing you know, you're bearing it all for my neighbors. <laughs> just like, I just thought in my mind, takes after his mother, you know? <laughs> we'll both be sleeping, John, in the, in the doghouse tonight. That's not true. That's utterly not true. He takes after his old man. So that's my dad, actually. <laughs> Well, I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to 1 Samuel 13. And if you're new, we've been going through this book, which is about the transition to the time of the kings in Israel. And um, just to kind of let you know where, what I'm going to do this morning, it's kind of how we've done it in the past, but just so you're mentally prepared, is I, I want to talk about the story, and then I want to talk about the application of it. And I know for some, they just like to get to the application, but I, I just firmly believe as a, as a student of the Bible that it's important to glue the application to the actual text itself. So I want to ask you to, one of the ways that, that helps um, when you're going through a story which is thousands of years old is to put yourself in the, in the picture and ask yourself, what would I do? And Because and, um, we're all human. Just Saul was human, we're human, and we struggle with the same temptations and fears. And so I think that's a helpful way of engaging in the story, and then the application comes towards the end. Um, let, me, let me pray for us and pray for us as, as fathers. Lord, we are... We are grateful for your amazing and immeasurable grace. Um, and I just ask your blessing and, and your grace upon the dads who are here. Um, I just want to ask that you grant us the grace to be heads of our homes, um, to know that the responsibility to, to, um, to uh, image forth Jesus to our kids and to our wife, not just in, in leadership but in service and that they might see in us our, our, our wives and kids and even those who live around us might see that we have a heart of a servant that loves to wash the feet of our children and our wife. Um, may you give us by your grace humility to be able to admit when we're wrong and stand firm in the things that we know that are right. Lord, I pray that you might um, give us each and every father here just a deep um, abiding passion for Jesus. Um, that we would love you above all else, uh, more than our careers, um, more than our possessions, more than our cars, more than our reputations, um, more than our wife, and more than our children. May they just see men who are utterly consumed with the glory of God. That's, that's what they need, and that's what, what, Lord, I pray you would do in, in your men here. 
um, I too just, uh, just ask that you would speak to us. Um, I also think of our two missionaries that are out in Ukraine, Kristen and also Brianne, and just ask, um, they are thousands of miles away, that you would bless them today, that they would know your grace abounds, that they would know your presence, and that they would experience your grace working through them as they minister to orphans and kids. Um, right now, Lord, we ask that you'd fill this room, fill it with your presence, and speak your truth. I pray that... Um, that you would have a, a very specific message for every person here and that they would hear the, your voice speaking and not mine and, and they, they would know that this is indeed comes from the scripture and not just from, from a man. So I, uh, I just offer you this time, Lord. We, um, we acknowledge our frailties to even take truth and apply it. Uh, we can't do it unless you show up. And so we just ask, please, in the name of Jesus, show up today and make this happen. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, starting on a bit more of a serious note, um, I think there's, it's safe to say that most, most of us in life have either in the past or maybe some in the present, or if you're young, maybe it's going to be in the future, um, face situations where you feel a bit, little bit like you're, you're backed into a corner with no way out. That is, it's maybe at the bottom of a hole looking up and wondering, how am I going to get out of here? Um, or just a, like it's an impossible situation that there's, there's no answer to. Uh, I remember um, having a, a friend, she was a, a girl, 17 years old, this is years and years ago, doesn't attend this congregation, so no associations here, um, 17 years old, and she found out that she was pregnant, and uh, her dad is a pastor. In that particular church environment, very, very ultra-conservative, um, for the child to mess up in that way oftentimes meant that the pastor lost his job. And um, she had a she she had a backed in the corner kind of an experience in which, on the one hand, um, to to bring the baby to term, and to deliver that baby would mean that the secret is out, the secret of her sin, and um, that will bring with it, especially in this church, the, the church culture that I, I was a part of, um, tremendous amount of shame and guilt and humiliation. And then, of course, there's the family dynamics of hurting um, father and mother. That's a difficult road to walk for somebody who's messed up. So that was, that was one direction, and it seemed a very difficult one. Um, the other option, of course, is to, to keep it a secret and to terminate the life of a baby, um, which, was, um, which was legal back then and is still legal today. Um, and, um, but she knew that, of course, that was wrong growing up in the church, that, that all life, all human life is sacred to the Lord. And um, to be with child means to be with child, an actual person. And so she was kind of in a straight between, uh, she was between a rock and a hard place, you know. Do I face the humiliation and the shame and the potential ramifications of my dad? Um, do I keep it a secret and terminate the life of, of this baby, which I know is wrong? Um, very, very difficult situation to be in. And it seems when you're in that situation, there's no way out. Now, up, upon reflection, of course, we do know that there's a way out. It's just a very difficult road. Now, this particular person chose the secrecy and terminated the life of her baby and um, has been suffering guilt for decades and has suicidal tendencies. As a result, she cannot forgive herself, and it was compounded when she had her first child, and she thought, what did I do? You know, it's a short-term gain with a long-term guilt, and they don't talk about that in the controversy, what it does to a woman's soul. Um, but she was in a corner, and she, she made a choice that kept everything secret and s secretly poisoned her own soul. Um, and people feel like that sometimes, like you're in a hole or you're in a, backed into a corner. Sometimes it's because of sinful choices that you've made or I've made. And, and at other times, it's more circumstantial. It's not choices you've made, maybe choices others have made, or just simply the way providence worked out. 
No, you lose your job, and, and the next thing you know, the bank is knocking on your door. And you didn't choose to lose your job. You just lost your job, and now they're saying, you know, we're foreclosing. And you sense absolutely no mercy from them whatsoever, no accommodation whatsoever or understanding, backed into a corner. Um, that's a scenario that, that's played out all the time in our, our, our time. Um, or another one, you know, finding out that you have lung cancer and your HMO is so restrictive um, that it will not give you the care that you need, that you know that you need because it's inflexible and insensitive, backed into a corner. Uh, or another situation in which a, a, a husband has been tr- deprived the wi- uh, rights, uh, visitation rights to his children because the law is decidedly f- toward the mother um, and with a malicious heart takes the kids away and he has absolutely nothing that he can do backed into a corner. Some of you are probably there now. Others have been there in the past, and I think most of us at some point will be there in the future. And the question is, how do you respond when when you're in that position? Um, Where's the light? What wise words would the Bible have when you feel backed into a corner? And um, I believe that in a negative way, chapter 13, the story in it, um, answers the question, um, how, how it actually, like I said in the negative, how not to respond when you're backed into a corner. Uh, this chapter is, uh, that's just the phrase that came to mind when I was pondering this chapter, um, backed into a corner, chapter 13. Saul and the people of Israel are quite literally backed into a corner with impossible odds. And we find that, oh, I'm not going to tell you the story until we get there, but let me just t- t- tell you a little bit about uh, uh, the pressures that existed at this time. Um, this is Israel's first king and, um, and an example of, of what not to do. Here's the, here's the situation, and again, try to put yourself in it in some way, shape, or form. Saul, that's the name of the first king, chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines um, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet through all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench. That's not a good word, by the way. In other words, um, they weren't liked by the Philistines as a result. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore um, in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. That is a sad paragraph. Um, just to kind of summarize it, to put it in perspective, here's the king. He has a standing army of 3,000. 2,000 are with him and 1,000 with his son Jonathan, 3,000. And Jonathan seems to be a feisty person who likes to take the initiative, and it kind of uh, begs the question, why is the son of the king taking the initiative, which won't be answered until the next uh, chapter. But he he decides he's going to go on the uh, offense, and he goes and he attacks a garrison of, of Philistines. Now, the word garrison, the Hebrew word that's translated garrison, can either mean garrison or governor. Um, some scholars believe what happened here and um, what provoked such a massive um, reaction was that he actually assassinated a Philistine governor. 
Um, so it's either governor or garrison. Either way, basically what the son of the king did is he walked up and proverbially flicked the Philistines right in the eye. And as a result, we have this amassing of an army that, that when, you, when you compare the 3,000 in Saul's standing army, you have 30,000 chariots. Now do the math on that. That's 30 chariots to every one soldier. 30 chariots, one soldier. Then you add to that 6,000 horsemen. Um, that's a lot of horsemen for every one soldier. And then when it talks about the troops, it, it, it equates it with the sand of the seashore, almost uh, innumerable. You can almost picture the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, and everybody marching against Minas Tirith, and the, 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 the sound of the thundering horses, and, and, and the troops, and the clanking of, of shields, and swords, and spears. And if I put myself in that picture, and I was a corporal in Saul's army, I'd think, I am, we are utterly and completely hosed. Um, we are so massively, it, it, to say it's outnumbered is, is a vast understatement. Um, now, some of your translations probably have some various numbers. NIV is a little bit different than the ESV right here. The point, however, is the same. They are massively outnumbered. Any general or military tactician would say, here you got 3,000 against 30 plus 6 plus innumerable. Just put up the white flag. Put up the white flag and surrender now. There's absolutely no way. This is an impossible situation. But to make matters worse, and this is where your Bible map comes in handy when you're studying the Bible, um, is where this army is located. Uh, Because for you who are visual, this is a map out of of a a Bible. (laughs) Um, It says that they're camped in Michmash. That's the name of the city. Now, if you notice, if you can read this, the Philistines, the where, place that they live, the kind of the borderline uh, of where they normally were is, is down along the coast of the Mediterranean. That's the left side there, this kind of light blue. That's where they live. That's where most of the battles with the Philistines happened is, is, is right there along the coast. But now they have this massive army of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and innumerable troops right there in the very heartland of Israel, just a few miles away from Jerusalem. In other words, they have, they have managed to insert themselves in an almost a divide-and-conquer sort of way in the life of God's people. And as a result of all of this, all of these troops and so forth, we find God's people not responding as if the Lord is with them. They're hiding in holes and tombs and cisterns, and some of them are fleeing. That is, they're deserting the army, heading off across the Jordan. So that, that's how they're responding in fear. And those who do stay with Saul, they're trembling. Now, that's, that's, that's where this is at. There's a, there's a, they're backed into a corner. You just, like I said, ask any general military tactician, this would be impossible odds. Backed into a corner. So how does a king respond to this? If you put yourself in the king's shoes, I think we could sympathize with the fear factor. Well, the king is instructed on what to do prior to this event. If you go back a few chapters to chapter 10, verse 8, he's given specific instructions. Here, try to keep with me here because this is where we run into trouble and the very first king of Israel makes a major mistake. The prophet speaks the word of the God and the king must submit or he is supposed to submit to the word of God spoken through the prophet. Prophet Samuel told King Saul these instructions when he was anointed. He said, go down before me to, to Gilgal, and that's where he is in chapter 13, um, 
And behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt, burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So his instructions back in chapter 10 were wait. I want you to wait. I will come and I will offer sacrifices. And then I'll tell you what to do. He will give verbal instruction. He's the mouthpiece of the Lord. So that he's going to um, tell Saul, the will of the Lord, um, when he gets there. So his, 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 his instructions are to wait. So fast forward to chapter 13. We find that he does wait, at least initially, waiting for these seven days. Verse 8, he waited seven days in the time appointed by, uh, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. His army is bleeding. His little 3,000 against however many are bleeding. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw, I want you to remember that word saw, okay, I'm going to come back to it. When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now he's strongly rebuked for this action. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God uh, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. It's leaning us towards the choice of David, the next king. Um, and the Lord had commanded him to be prince over the people because you have not kept the Lord, what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. Uh, they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. It's interesting. This is a, a point that, that catches a lot of people off guard. Is here's this massive you know, army, and there's this scattering of the people of Israel, and, and the pressure's on, and, and he waits seven days. Um, that's what the text says. He waited seven days. And, and when he saw that, that the, the, the prophet wasn't on time, are there any people here who just are kind of punctual people, who people who don't show up on time irritate you? Any, anybody that's like that? I don't always show You don't want to raise your hand because it would be an admission of guilt because you're like Saul. <laughs> I'm like that. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm like a person who... who um, I'm late sometimes, but most of the time it's only a couple minutes, and it, it just bothers me. I get agitated and frustrated when I'm waiting around if I sense I'm going to be late for something, which is a little bit of a friction point in my marriage. You know? Deanna's a little bit more laid back. I'm like, oh, we got to go. we got to be there on time. Lord has used that, by the way, in my life to humble me and, and uh, chill me out a little bit. But I can totally understand. He's waiting. I mean, the armies are leaving, and what do you do in those situations? Typically, a fallen human individual, especially a man, if, 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 if no one's showing up, what do you do? You, t- you take the reins, you take control. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to own this. I'm going to make something happen. And that's exactly what he does. Instead of waiting for the, the prophet to get there, offer the sacrifices, and give the instruction as to what to do, he manages to do it himself. 
And then he is, he is uh, massively and severely rebuked for it to the point where his line is rejected. Notice, Saul himself is not rejected as king. It's the continuation of his line. His son will not sit on the throne. And it seems really severe. I mean, given the circumstances, what did he say? Um, when I saw the army scattering and I saw that you weren't on time, there's a little bit of a hint of blame there. Um, and, 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 and the Philistines were amassing. Well, I did what I had to do. The question is, what, what, what did he do that was wrong? What, what did he do that was wrong? And it, some people have answered that question, that the major sin that this first king did was that he offered sacrifices and he wasn't a priest. That is, that he was exercising priestly prerogatives without divine sanction. A Levite, the only one who should be offering sacrifices, not a Benjamite. Some have taken that, that line of argument, he shouldn't have been sacrificed to begin with. The problem, of course, is with that is if you read Second Samuel and First Kings, both David and Solomon offer sacrifices with impunity. I don't think that's the heart of it. I think perhaps the heart of why he was um, so strongly rebuked and his line rejected is because in addition to waiting for the prophet to come and make the sacrifice, he was also supposed to wait for the word of the Lord. That's, the, that's part of the instruction. I'll, you wait there seven days, I'll come down and make the sacrifices, and I'll tell you what to do. That is, I'll give you the Lord's instruction for the battle of the day. So it wasn't just about sacrifices, about waiting for God's instruction, waiting upon God's word and God's direction. So when he decided at the last moment, prophet's not here, army's leaving, big army in front of me, um, and he took things into his own hands and offered the sacrifices, in essence what he was doing is he was taking the reins of deliverance and salvation into his own hands. In that moment, we saw into the deep recesses of Saul's heart that at the end of the day when he's pressed, who does he really trust in but himself? That is, I think, behind his disobedience is a disbelieving heart. When it was push came to shove, he took matters into his own hands and didn't wait for the word of the Lord. And by the way, there's a, also an interesting thing. That he did make a sacrifice to gain the favor of the Lord in a way that's disobedient, it suggests that he thinks somehow by offering a sacrifice he can force the hand of God a form of divine manipulation. If I offer the sacrifice, even though I don't wait for him, maybe he'll scratch my back. And that, that was the pagan view of the day. You offer a sacrifice for, before battle because if we scratch the God's back, maybe they'll scratch our back. God of Israel doesn't work that way. He comes and delivers his people and loves his people before they do anything good. That is, he calls them to trust in the sufficiency of his steadfast love. And the sacrifices of his people really are just a simple response to the fact that he first loved them. He delivers on the basis of grace, not on the basis of human sacrifices, at least that originate with humans. So he's rejected. And then he goes back to, to his hometown in Gibeah, and there we'll find out at the beginning of chapter 14 that, that he sits under a pomegranate tree, inert and paralyzed, doesn't know what to do. 
But before then, just want to show you that it gets worse. Again, just want to paint the picture as dark as I can. Actually, as dark as the, the text does. Because it tells us that Saul numbered his people who were present with him. This is after he's been rejected. Notice, by the way, he doesn't repent. He doesn't go face down. David, when he's confronted about his sin, gets on his face and says, I have sinned. Saul, what does he do? He makes excuses. But when I saw this and this and this, I took things into my own hands. And then subtly lays the blame at Samuel's feet. And by the way, you weren't here on time. Almost a certain sign of arrogance and disbelief when a person responds not with genuine repentance but with defensiveness or justification. Anyway, out of that, he numbers his people, present with him about 600. He's now lost 1,400 men or depending on how many, if he had all 3,000, he lost more than that. Verse 16, and Saul and Jonathan and his son and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. Verse 17, and raiders came out from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. He numbers his guys. That's almost like a counting the odds kind of thing, and that doesn't really work, work well in either book of First or Second Samuel. When David numbers his people to boost his confidence, the Lord pours out some judgment. So he's numbering as he's calculating. I only got 600 guys left. That's not a good turn of events. Verse 17, in addition to the fact that there's this massive army right in the middle of Israel, we find that there are these raiding parties that are sent out to the west and to the east and to the north. For you who are visual, this is, um, this is where they go. These are raiding parties. These are uh, parties intended to pillage and perhaps rape and plunder God's people. So they're on the move. They are dividing and they are conquering. So it's, it, 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 the matters are getting worse. Then... Last but not least, and here I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and summarize this, but verse 20 tells us um, that, 19 and 20 tells us that the people of Israel were so dominated by the Philistines that there wasn't a single blacksmith in the land. Uh, the reason being because the Philistines didn't want the Israelis to make swords and spears. Uh, they had to go down to the Philistines to get their farming implements like sickles and axes and plowshares sharpened. That is, they had a monopoly on the blacksmith trade to keep the people of Israel unarmed. Like the first biblical event of gun control. You know, that's kind of what it is. That is, it is, they don't have the right to bear arms. The only two people who have any kind of military weapons are the king and his son, Jonathan. Those are the only two. That means the rest of his 600 men are probably armed with sickles and I don't know how you fight with a plowshare, but an axe or a pick. I mean, they got farming implements. So they are outmanned. They are out-resourced on the day of war. And we're told, as I said at the beginning of 14, given all this, I mean, superior numbers, put it all together, superior numbers, the king just tried to take matters into his own hands. He's just been rebuked. He's just been told his line is rejected. There's raiding parties that are going north and east and, 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 and west. And, and now um, nobody, has, nobody has any kind of fighting weapons whatsoever. This is back against the wall, backed into a corner. Seems like mission impossible. Now I realize I leave the story hanging here. The story actually finishes at the end of 14, but for sake of focus and also time, I just needed to conclude it here. We'll pick up next week in 14. But what do we learn from this? Because we end kind of in a dark corner here. What do we learn from this about faith? Two lessons. Let me give you a negative one and a positive one um, of 
how faith does not work and how faith does work. One, faith does not rely upon numbers or resources to carry out God's will. Let me just say that again, um, that faith does not, biblical faith does not rely on numbers or resources to carry out God's will. Did you notice how many numbers there were in this chapter? Saul had a standing army of 3,000. 2,000 with one, 1,000 with another. The people, the Philistines, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops that are innumerable. Vastly outnumbered. Who has the swords? Who doesn't have the swords? Out-resourced. And if you're looking at numbers and resources, then this is hopeless. In the next chapter, Saul's son, who lives by a different theology, says something interesting, which carries this numbers theme. He says that the Lord is not hindered to save by few or by many. What Saul doesn't get, his son gets. And that is, it's not about the numbers. It's not about the numbers. God does not require or need numbers or resources to save and deliver. Saul, on the other hand, when he sees, he saw with his eyes the size of the army, his army fleeting, the time. He's living by what he sees. He is walking by sight and not by faith. And I, I, I believe this lesson is this first truth. Faith does not rely upon numbers or resources to carry out God's will. It's an extremely important truth given our day. Um, and you'll forgive if I don't intend on uh, offending anybody if this is how you think of yourself, but we live in a day in which um, the world is ruled by Bean counters. One, two, three, four. One dollar, two dollar, three dollar. What are the polls? We got one person thinks this, another person thinks this. Um, what are the votes? The whole world revolves around counting numbers. In the sense that oftentimes we won't do or act on anything until all the numbers are just right. If Saul waited for that, well, he'd do exactly what he's doing, sitting under a pomegranate tree paralyzed. Because he's looking at the numbers. Now let me make the necessary qualification here that you want me to make or need me to make. Are numbers important? Financial numbers, resource numbers, Yes, they're important. Did God create numbers? Absolutely. And he has an affinity for 7 and 12. <laughs> Are numbers useful? Yes. Does the wise person take into account numbers? Yes. Do we use numbers? Yes. Is our life based on how many numbers we have? Our our motion towards the will of God, our sense of spiritual success or the advancement of God's kingdom dependent upon numbers? The resolute answer of the Bible is heck no. It's not. 
God loves to take bean counters. Again, if you happen to be an accountant, um, I'm not talking negatively about you. We need you. You have a function in the body. But we don't want to depend upon the numbers in praying for, seeking for, and then going after God's will. Um, I just think about, you know, Gideon, Judges chapter 7. Gideon comes to his army, brings his army to this, this little brook, and, and God's like, you got too big of an army, dude. You've got to slim it down, downsize. Like, who, what general downsizes his troops in the middle of a war? But his whole point in that passage was, you know what, if you have all these numbers, you'll walk away and you'll think it was about the numbers that won, not me. He sometimes decreases the numbers so that we'll trust him. Or there were some bean counters that were part of Jesus' little uh, group of 12. You know, there's thousands of people that are gathered out in the wilderness, and, and, um, and they come and they say, hey, there's too many people here. We can't feed these people, so send them away. And Jesus is like, you feed them. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? Us, feed them. He says, well, what do you got? And it's like, well, we got two fish, and we got five loaves, just two and five. And Jesus, I mean, this is just God's heart. It's like, now, now you're going to see my glory. You don't have the numbers. Two fish and five loaves. And they break them. And by the time the thousands have eaten, the baskets are still full. You see, and, and, and that, 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 there's, a, there's a freeing lesson. We've made an idolatry of numbers. Um, and when we, when we do that, we live in fear. Fear of losing what we have or trying to obsess over gaining more because we don't feel secure enough in what we have. Uh, we will either find ourselves paralyzed by fear because the numbers aren't right, or we will find ourselves con- to be control freaks because we've got to control and manage numbers. We've got to stop and remember that, that the Lord feeds billions of sparrows every day, and not a single one of them has a 401k plan. <laughs> and again, does the wise man save? Yes. But God does not need that to take care of you. And the moment you think you do, you're living on the basis of numbers, and you'll live in fear. This truth, by the way, is not intended to create foolishness or frivolous spending, but rather for us to to sink our roots of our lives deep into the bedrock of his steadfast love, which will care for you. You just trust him. Instead of looking at the numbers, you look to the Lord. Instead of looking to the numbers, you look to the Lord. All right? One more lesson, and we're done. Um, the second lesson that comes out of this is probably the, the main lesson, um, and that is that God calls us to trust in his word even if it seems like he's not on time. You get that? There's a couple of really important words there, his word. He calls us to trust in what he says even if it seems like he's not on time. He was, Saul was told by the prophet, Wait seven days and I will come and give you the word of what you're to do. He didn't wait for the word. Because somehow, perhaps, he thought, God, you're not showing up. You're not showing up. So what do we do when we find that God's not answering our prayers like, like, like we're expecting him or we want him to? Or, or he, he, he's, he, he's not uh, blessing you in a way that um, you think you should be blessed. Or you're praying for a soul that's lost and, and, and he's not answering uh, if you're an impatient person, well, then you begin to get frustrated and agitated and perhaps begin to doubt, all right, Lord, well, you're not going to be here. But um, I think the Lord in the scriptures oftentimes, well, let me put it this way, he specializes in last-minute deliverances. And 
that too has a design so that we'll trust him. You know, so we'll trust him. Last minute deliverances, Abraham getting ready to offer Isaac. I mean, he could have saved that whole emotional scenario far earlier, but he didn't. He waited to the last minute and say, stop, stop. And just to really believe that. I believe in whatever way that you have determined you will come through. Um, it may not be what I expect or what I want, but I trust that you're going to come through, that even if it's last minute. John Barry has this, um, has this metaphor that he uses, and, um, and it's gained some traction amongst our staff because it, it's just, it, it's a good picture and it's easy to remember. But it's about Christmas, you know, and, and depending on your home, that this may, may not be the case, but in his home and my home, um, presents don't usually arrive under the tree until like the day before Christmas or Christmas morning. So the kids will ask, well, where are the presents under the tree? And because um, there's no presents. And yet somehow at the last minute, you know, they're all worried about the presents not arriving. Where are the presents? And then somehow Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, depending on when you celebrate or open presents, all of a sudden they appear and boom, they arrived. Last minute. Well, we, this last couple weeks, we're, we're praying for, for volunteers. And I don't even like the word volunteer because a person who's a volunteer should be every bit as committed as someone who is not volunteer in the church. But we're praying for people to step, step up and, and, and say, hey, I'll do this at VBS. I'll do this at VBS. It's like a huge machine. And at one point, we were vastly under, under unmanned, undermanned, um, underwomaned. And... Um, and so we prayed about it as a staff, and, you know, uh, oftentimes when you're thinking, hey, is, 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 is God going to provide for us? I mean, we've prayed, we've asked, we've gotten the word out. And it's easy if you doubt or live in doubt or fear of, of lack of numbers to become agitated, frustrated, or even judgmental. And at that point, John's words were like words of gold. He said, um, you know what? When it's Christmas, there'll be presents under the tree. That was his way of saying, when the day arrives, we'll have exactly what we need. And you know, um, it was amazing to come here on Monday and watch. And um, every needed seat was filled. The presents were under the tree. God supplied the last minute. And I don't know why we ever doubt. But just to remember that. When the day comes, the presents will be under the tree. God will provide for you. You just keep looking for him. He's a, he's a specializes in last minute saves. And even in this dark story, while King Saul failed, God wouldn't give up on his people. He was going to raise up a deliverer from somewhere else. Only this deliverer would not be one who would deliver by many, but by few. In fact, God is going to move through the heart of Jonathan, one man and his armor bearer. Because he trusts in the simple theology that God is not hindered by many or by few. So he launches out by himself with his armor bearer, and it will change the whole course of this war. He's going to defy the odds, the impossible odds, and everything's going to go in the direction of salvation. God is not constrained or hindered to deliver by many or by few, even one. You know, that was his design all the way, wasn't it? I mean, one man who kneels in a garden late at night, who is facing more 
odds and enemies than one could ever count, whether it be the legions of the demonic or the power of Roman justice or the crowds of people chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucifying, or the knowledge that you are going to take upon yourself the cumulative wrath of God for the sake of all people, all God's people. Those are massive odds. And yet in those dark moments, as he struggled, like Saul was struggling, Jesus didn't give in to trusting in what he saw, but Jesus trusted himself to the one who judges justly. And while he was wrestling and said, Lord, if it be possible, take this cup from me, what really won the day was that he surrendered himself in faith to his father, trusting him in the darkness, and he went to the cross and said, not my will, but yours be done. And where Saul failed, Jesus persevered. And he showed himself to be a king worth trusting, who wouldn't buckle and showed us that he can win all by himself. That's the heart of the Lord, brothers and sisters, and if there was anybody who is caught in a corner with no way out, it was him. And yet he's here with us. He's living at the right hand of the Father, and he rules the nations. That means we can trust these two things about him, that faith does not rely upon numbers, but we rely upon Christ. That God calls us to trust in Christ even if it seems like he's late. To know that he has been there, he sympathizes, and he is our king who has proved himself worthy in battle. I am so grateful, and I hope you are too, that this is the kind of Lord that we have. And I hope if you're in that situation where you're backed into a corner right now and you feel like there's no way out, I pray that the Holy Spirit will take these two truths and replant your life on a better foundation. God will never give up on those who trust him. And he loves last minute saves. Don't look to the numbers. You look to the Lord. Lord, we praise you and thank you. We just honor you and glorify you in Christ's name. Amen.